I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And welcome to the Bohemian Podcast with Pete Coleman and Travis Doe. Double Vetcher and welcome to Bohemian Podcast. I'm Pete Coleman. And I'm Travis Dow from the History of Alchemy podcast. Tonight's podcast is uh, pretty dark, but we have to talk about this uh, this person, this individual, and in one of the darker times in the Czech, uh, Czechoslovakia and Czech Republic history. And that dealt with the era of pre-World War II and World War II and Reinhard Heydrich. In respects to his measurement for a lot of people, he was the worst Nazi. What made him rise to the top of the worst of the worst? I mean, if you ask me, he is the worst Nazi ever, period. And um, he's, there, there's a long list of, of reasons for that, but, or why I think that. But um, he was one of the main architects of the Holocaust. He oversaw the Gestapo, the secret police. I mean, he was basically in charge of, of both, both the criminal police and the secret police. And he was also the president of Interpol. Now, is that the same inter- that? that's not the same Interpol we that see today. That is the but... same Interpol that's still around today. Wow. It was headquartered in Germany at the time, so the Nazis took it over. It's kind of a dark stain on Interpol history. I, yeah, he was, he was the president of that Interpol. Uh, he was also the architect of what, was, what we know now as the final solution yeah, to the so Jewish question, actually, right? Yeah, I don't want to say it was all him, but he was the he chaired the the Vanze conference, which that's when they discussed the quote Jewish question, and that's where they came up with the quote final solution, and and he was definitely a big part of that. He um, advocated uh, basically genocide 
because uh, some of the other advocates there were saying, well, we'll just uh, deport them to Russia, deport them further east. And Heydrich was one of the ones that spoke up and said, no, because if we actually win the war, then there will be no east that's not Germany. So that's a temporary solution. We need a final solution. So, I mean, he was, you know, ice cold logic saying, nope, since we're going to take over the Soviet Union anywhere, anyway, we can't just send them there. We've got to, you know, come up with a final answer. And he also so, organized this final solution, even with the rail systems. He he was he was into this to the minutia of this of this yeah, extermination. Yeah, he, he was plan. one of the guys behind the actual logistics of, um, you know, he has. I mean, we know the numbers like you know, the Nazis killed 11 million people altogether, six million Jews, but he himself is responsible for 75,000 in parts of Ch Czech Republic, 100,000. Um, elsewhere, like he himself, you know, helped orchestrate this just through the logistics of it and setting up death camps in, in his area of control. And um, yeah, pretty, in fact, just, just in the matters of extermination and deportation of Jews, he only took orders from Hitler, Goering, and Himmler. So he was fourth in command and had a lot of leeway in what he could do, and he used it. And he, he was evil. very I mean, he close was, to Hitler. Hitler yeah. when, upon Heydrich's death, after the assassination attempt that we'll get into later in the show, Hitler went crazy about it. He went into a mourning period and a yeah. rage period. He well, wanted to destroy the entire the, Czech race. He's, he's one of the guys, he's actually probably the best example of someone that rose through the ranks. So when he started in the SS, he was, he was the lowest. He was a foot soldier, and he went all the way to being a general. And, uh, you know, then actually getting, getting being a, a deputy Protect, you know, protectorate of, of Bohemian. So, I mean, he really went from the very bottom to the very top, fourth in command. And uh, so, yeah, they really liked the guy. Absolutely. What, what really concerns me on a human level is the idea that this, this guy's not some kind of whack job from the street that kind of made his way by slitting throats and, and, uh, and blackmail to make his way to the top. He was an extremely intelligent, cultured German man that um, by any other account would be uh, considered uh, the top, the top of, of his generation. He was. And, if, you know, his yeah. kids even said he was a good father. Yeah, if, you know? if he was in a different time, it's hard to say what would have happened because um, his father was a composer. He played the violin, like, extremely well. Um, he, you know, even his, his, all his names are from, like, composers and, and characters in Wagner. And, you know, he's from a cultured family. Um, his parents even had a school for gifted musicians. Like, yeah, you know, it's hard to say what he could have been in a different time and place. And, and what's concerning about this is the cold calculation and and removal of having the compassion that you could show to your own children, and and be an architect of destroying lives and an entire race. Yeah. Just about with the, Jew the Jewish population. It wasn't just to the Jewish population. He was also focused on extermination of uh, homosexuals, the disabled. Yeah, all non-quote Aryans. Gypsies. You know. yeah. I mean, he oh, was yeah. responsible for... Slavs. He, yeah. He, you know, yeah. he wanted that, that, that question to be answered, that, that Jewish question especially. And I think that's what's more shocking that we get to the bottom of this podcast on, on Reinhard Heydrich is to know that um, he was a complicated man in a complicated time, but uh, evil nonetheless. Yeah. He also, he helped organize Kristallnacht. The Night of Broken Glass. Yeah. Right, which translation. Just all, every, it was kind of orchestrated and, and planned. And basically, they said, okay, if, if anybody that wants to go loot 
um, any Jewish-owned business is free to do so without any police intervention. And they just, you know, synagogues burned. I mean, it's just this, this huge organized criminal activity throughout the whole German Empire at the time. And, you know, the police didn't just stand by and watch, they helped. I mean, you know, everybody that he had control over, they actually helped them, you know, loot. And another thing he was, he helped orchestrate was the night and fog degree. This is like the original is Nacht and Nebel. And that's, it's also this huge orchestration where they'd come at night and, uh, you know, come to your apartment and deport people. And this, this even happened in France and, and, and other places and orchestrated through the Gestapo. And on the, on the envelope, the, you know, the, you, they'd put your file in an envelope, and on the envelope it said Nacht and Nebel, like night and fog. It's kind of like this sneakily thing that they would do at night, come to your apartment, you know, arrest you, and, and no one would ever see you again, basically. That, was, that took huge logistics, too. I mean, that was like 75,000 people just from that one operation. Um, he was also the guy that kind of helped set up the census to first figure out who all who was Jewish and who was Aryan. So this was like this very racially um, kind of racially targeted census to figure out who everybody was. And then, you know, like we said, the rail idea. So, you know, he's, he's the one that kind of figured out the, the nitty gritty details of the logistics of, okay, we've got to kill six million people. You know, that's not the number was at first, but, you know, we've got to kill hundreds of thousands of people. How do we do that? You know, you know not, not so to digress too much with the Nuremberg trials that happened later after the war, but this was really at the heart of the question. Who was responsible for all these deaths and, and, and war crimes? Were the subordinates or was it the head of, head of the, the monster? And what the prosecution didn't want to hear, that the defense wanted to say, were saying, listen, we fought the, the rules of war is that you can't persecute the ones that were following the orders. You need to persecute the ones that were giving the orders. And the person giving the orders in most of these cases was Reinhardt Heydrich. Yeah, to a degree. I mean, at what point do you say, no, that order is messed up? You know, that's... Right. Yeah, as but, we as we found out that that was one of the the big problems that the Nuremberg trials tried to figure out was that no, you are responsible. He wanted to complete compliance and, and executed all members of the Czech resistance that he could get his hands on. Uh, it was a, a very heady time at, the, at, at at this point, and he was in charge of really rooting out any resistance that be coming coming his yeah. way. He had this this color coded index card system, and the colors were for different types of offenses. So if he found out somebody's name, he would just write it on a card. And then if anything, you know, any offense, whether criminal or, or being a gypsy or homosexual or Jewish ties or um, black market, anything, he would, you know, color, he, he would put the color on your card. So he started, you know, even if he didn't arrest them right away, he just started gathering his files. And um, yeah, just insane. And there's, there's another side note here that's kind of interesting is Himmler began developing this notion of a Germanic religion, kind of a neo-pagan um, really weird occult-based thing, and he wanted all the SS members to leave the church and join his religion. And in '36, Heydrich left the Catholic Church, and his wife Lena did a year did so a year before, basically. And now Heydrich no longer felt he could be a member, but came to consider the church's political power and influence a danger to the state. So uh, it was also Heydrich that kind of wanted to marginalize the Catholic Church. And so they willingly joined this 
you could look that up too. It's it's weird. Like it, Himmler's it is occult it is system. really dark occult stuff. That's that, like when you see Indiana Jones movies and they're looking looking for the Lost Ark and that kind of thing. Right, that's Spear a of part Destiny. of that. Yeah, yeah. They're, yeah. They're, they're looking for something to tie their Germanic legacy to, and it goes back to this ancient um, this idea uh, that is completely false. By the way, just so our listeners know, but it's this idea that that Aryans at one point ruled the universe the the world and you know had this kind of atlantean thing that they then lost i mean it's just far out there and and uh, but and, they and, acted on it and he I only mean. allowed the the top echelon you couldn't just be a part of the ss and be a part of this occult sort of subsection or or group you had to be voted in and you yeah, also was, you also had to go through a ritual it was a secret society to within agree. a secret society yeah, yeah so it, it very very sketchy to say the least but um, you know, Travis, this kind of brings us to, to the time when the Czech Republic was, was basically handed over to the Nazis. Uh, Lord Chamberlain of Great Britain, France, the Munich Agreement, basically giving over Bohemia and Moravia to the Nazis. Now, the, the one person that was the Deputy Reich Protector uh, of this protectorate was too soft. Thus enter this new yeah. character of Heydrich. Yeah, one of the quotes is that Heydrich came in and he said, you, you Basically, like, we will, and this is a quote, he said, we will Germanize the Czech vermin, right? So to realize his goals, he demanded racial classification, which kind of comes back to this, the census. And this classification was basically those that could and could not be Germanized. So as you may know, there was a lot of Germans living in, in, um, in uh, Bohemia and Moravia at the time, and like Sudetendeutsche might tell you something, or Volksdeutsche. These are like Germans that, lived outside of Germany. And there, there were a lot, I mean, uh, in some places they were a majority, in, especially in the Sudetenland, and like in the north of the country, the south of the country. Cultural, partially German. Uh, they spoke the German language. Uh, German last names, it, yeah. It, it really kind of crossed over borders. Yeah, and it, it was really hard to pick one from the other because many of those Germans had Czech last names and many of the Czechs that were Czech had German last names. So, you know, so this is one thing that Heydrich wanted to do was say, okay, you know, um, who can be who can be Germanized and who can't? And here's another quote. He said, "Making this Czech garbage into Germans must give way to methods based on racist thought." Yeah. So yeah, End he's quote. really a so friend of the Czech people. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. He he basically started to to rule by terrorizing the whole population. Right. Right. When he came in, first couple of days when he entered Prague, ninety-two people were executed. And then their names, I mean, this wasn't in secret. Like, their names appeared on posters throughout the occupied region. You know, big warning straight away. All ways that Czechs could have expressed their culture were, like, openly at least, were closed. So all universities, all Czech um, teachers, everything, the whole intelligentsia was, was shut down and replaced by German professors and, you know, Germanized as much as possible. Um, there's, there's one estimate that saying... By February of 42, he came in 41, some 4,000 to 5,000 people were arrested. So pretty soon within him coming in. And those that were not immediately executed were sent to Mauthausen-Gusen, which is a concentration camp. And only after the war, only 4% of those Czech prisoners survived. Well, in those that aren't familiar with Mauthausen, uh, it's got a rocky parapet that leads into a, a giant uh, ditch, and it was known that instead of just wasting gas on the on the on the Jewish or the gypsies in that mostly Jewish at the time population in that camp, they just pushed them off the edge 
um, into into the death. And if they didn't die in the fall, they brought them back up and did it again. So this was all under his watch. He knew this was going on. Oh yeah. Uh, To save money, he decided that you know that this would be a way of execution. Yeah, they they he got a nickname pretty quick, which he was called the Butcher of Prague. I mean, he yeah he definitely had a reputation. In a sense, he kind of held the whole nation captive. And people didn't understand what that really meant until later. But yeah, yeah. And, and Heydrich used uh, equipment confiscated from the Czech organization Sokol uh, to organize events uh, for workers at the time. He wanted to make sure that there would be no organization that would go against the Nazi machine. Uh, this was this was one. And we did a podcast on the Sokol movement. So exactly. If that's not a term you recognize. Go listen to them. Right, and and, and it was and it was also a, a way for the Czechs to, to band together, and he saw that, and he said that that cannot be left alone. We've got to be able to dismantle that. Uh, people were often uh, tortured, or executed simply by being involved in the black market, which I'm sure at the time yeah. was a huge way of so, just survival, almost for nothing. Yeah, because because everybody was on rations, everybody, you know, um, yeah. So there was a lot of smuggling going on and that kind of thing, and he just he just put the kibosh on that, which yeah. ended up meaning people were starving. I mean, this, you know. Right. Maybe not as bad as, as St. Petersburg at the time uh, of being surrounded and starving for several years, but close enough. Yeah. Uh, it, it was a tough time here. But there, were, there was also a, a sense of, of ego driving this man. And I'm sure you can, you can, our listeners can sense this, where we're going with this. But the ego was also to uh, prove that the superstitions of the old ways would not interfere with him. Now, he was a man of the occult, so he probably had a, a good vested interest on on, you know, maybe some legends mean something, but not not if they're not German. If they're legends yeah. from other people, I have to debunk them. And some of the things, Travis, that he did from wearing the, the, the Czech royal crown, which was a no-no, and also visiting the area where the legendary Gollum clay man was supposedly uh, w- laying and waiting in the attic of, of, of the uh, synagogue, he wanted to debunk those things. Yeah, we've talked about both of those before, that that he, he marched in. There's, there's a room in the Prague Castle that has, you know, the seven locks. One's by, one key is by the, by the prime minister and, and so forth, president. And uh, he had them unlocked, marched in there, put on the, all the crown jewels, you know, held the scepter, sat on the throne. Um, and the same thing with the old Neuschul. We talked about that before, too. We talked about the Gollum myth. And he marched right up into, into the synagogue and had the attic opened and, uh, you know, marched right in there. And, you know, those are both Strictly, strictly taboo. I mean, yeah, and you can't they're, go there. they're taboo because they actually held a, a punishment for doing such things. That if you weren't the king, you didn't put yeah. on the crown, you didn't hold the orb or the scepter, or sit in the uh, sit in the throne, or death would come to to you. Uh, same thing with with looking for uh, going up to the attic where the golem was, was supposed to be, uh, the mythical protector of the Jewish people. He wanted to definitely make sure to debunk that that no, that there would be no help coming to the Jewish people in form of a legend of the golem. So um, as we first see later on in the podcast, actually that kind of stuff caught up with him, didn't it? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, just to I know we're not to overstress this point, but um, just to, to I, th- I think the the single point that in my mind, cements his reputation as being the worst Nazi is that, you know, he, he just had a lot of displays of public goodwill, but um, privately he, he was very clear about his goal. And uh, another quote from him is, is, this entire area will one day be definitely German, and the Czechs have nothing to expect here. And what he meant was um, he actually outlined his plans that eventually up to two-thirds of the population which basically the Slavic two-thirds, were to be either removed to regions like Russia or just straight up exterminated after Nazi Germany won the war. 
So, and Bohemia and Moravia was one of the places that was basically slated for direct annexation into the, into the German Reich. So other places were kind of, you know, like France was clearly more of an occupation and the French weren't going to go anywhere. But with Bohemia and Moravia, it was clear that we're going to wipe out the native population. And this is when the Germans talk of living room, this is what they meant. We're going to wipe out the population and Germans can move here. But before, I mean, we, but before we do that as the, as the Third Reich, we want to get the most out of them and make them slave laborers. Yep. So, so that, that kind of leads one, us yep. into, into the uh, exploitation of the Nazi regime uh, that came in and conscripted, and conscripted labor force of the Czech people. More than 100,000 workers were removed uh, from unsuitable jobs, quote-unquote, uh, and conscripted into the Ministry of Labor. So that would take them, into Travis, into a wide variety of... You know of what unsuitable jobs means? Uh, that would be probably what the... This is like Czech professors yeah, or something. That's so the first thing you go after. Up. Yeah, anybody in the government, any, any intelligentsia, authors, publishers... You're Czech, that's unsuitable for that, you. This also meant musicians. This is the same story. Yeah, if this sounds familiar, exactly. unfortunately, this happened uh, several uh, decades or so later with the communists. They did the yeah. same thing in the 1950s. If you were of that part of the re uh, of of a of a class of education, um, high, high uh, poetry, if you were part of the arts, you were the first ones to be gone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also the religious sector as well. Out of here. And so this, this also fell into what the Germans were trying to do to the Czech people. So a very, very tough time. By December uh, 1941, the Czechs would be called to work anywhere within the Third Reich. Uh, between April and November of 1942, 79,000 Czech workers were taken in this manner for work within Nazi Germany. Also, in February of 1942, the workday was increased from 8 hours to 12 hours. Yeah. So, so when you say slave labor, it was tough, mm -hmm. uh, very tough. Heydrich was, for all intents and purposes, the military dictator of Bohemia and Moravia. He had this area under his thumb. His changes to the government structure left President Emil Hacha and his cabinet virtually powerless, just puppets in puppet seats. Uh, he often drove alone in a car with an open roof to show his confidence during the occupation time of the forces and the government's uh, effectiveness in his rule. Yeah. So this, again, foreshadows his ego that yeah, led to his demise. Might come back to bite him. Yeah, right? but he, uh, he was trying to show that he felt safe. I mean, even people advised against that kind of thing, but he was going to show, like, nope, I got everything under my thumb. There's nothing to worry. And um, I got to say, Emil Haha gets the short end of the stick a lot of the times from historians because um, they see him as kind of, you see, you see him as kind of kowtowing to the Germans. Um, but in all honesty, there's not a whole lot he could do. I mean, I think um, to give it a more balanced view, you, you got to say that there's not much he could do, and he probably did all he could to lessen the the oppression, you know. And and I think that's kind of the more modern view that's coming back into favor. But for a long time, he was just a villain, especially under the communists. He was just seen as a as a Nazi puppet, which he was. But um, yeah, there's you know anybody else in his shoes. I mean, that's just a very hard man to judge, is what I would say. Well, you know, this this is the hard part when you talk about the, the Czechs. And sometimes the Czechs will be self-effacing and saying that, you know, maybe we're not the ones to up to 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 be uh, um, uh, insubordinate and cause a resistance that's going to cause a lot of problems. We're just going to go with the flow, try to write out history to better times, and and see if we can do that. But that's not that's not exactly the truth here. There was uh, an operation called Anthro uh, Operation Anthropod 
which is one of my favorite stories and saddest stories in my mind yeah. uh, in a very sad conflict in World War II. And, and that uh, was dealing with uh, an operation that was backed by the British government and by Winston Churchill himself to train checks to uh, several checks, a Czech team, to parachute into, uh, into the occupied territory. And it was an amazing story uh, that led to some serious ramifications. Heydrich was attacked in Prague on the 27th of May, 1942, by this British-trained team of Czech and Slovak soldiers who had been sent to the, uh, by the Czech Czechoslovak government in exile to kill him in an operation with the British Special Operation uh, Executive, SOE. Preparation began on the 20th of October, 1941. Warrant Officer Josef Gabček from Slova uh, Slovak and, and Staff Sergeant Karl Soboda, who was a Czech, uh, were chosen to carry out the operation on the 28th of October, 1941, which happened to be the Czechoslovakia's Independence Day. Yeah. Soboda was replaced by Jan Kubisch, uh, also a Czech, after a head injury sustained during training during this mission. So Gabček and Kubisch were, they were, like you said, they were airlifted along with seven soldiers from Czechoslovakia's army in exile. Um, and they came flying out of the United Kingdom and two other groups named Silver A and Silver B, but you know, they were on different missions, but they, basically they all flew together. They were flown by the Royal Air Force Halifax number 138 squadron into Czechoslovakia at 10 p.m. on the 28th of December, 1941. So Gabček and Kubisch landed near Nechvizdi, east of Prague. Basically, they were supposed to land near Pilsen, but the, the pilots got a little bit lost, so they, they dropped them off there instead. And the soldiers then moved their way to Pilsen, contacted their allies, and from there went on to Prague. Now, in Prague, they, con they contacted several families and anti-Nazi organizations who helped them during the preparations for the kill. And the initial plan was to get Heydrich on a train. But uh, after kind of, you know, looking at the logistics and everything, they realized that that was, you know, basically impossible. The second plan was to kill him on the road out in the woods on the way from Heydrich's seat to Prague. They planned to pull a cable across the road that would stop Heydrich's car. After waiting several hours, uh, their commander, Lieutenant Adolf Opalka, from the group Out Distance, it's one of the resistance groups, um, kind of gave up after waiting for many, many hours and then brought him back to Prague, okay? The third plan, which is the one they went with, was to kill Heydrich in Prague. Right. And, and this is this leads us into the attack that did the job. Yeah. Uh, on the 27th of May, 1942, at 10.30, Heydrich uh, proceeded to his daily commute from the ho from his home in uh, Perenske Brezhany to Prague Castle. Gubček and Kubish awaited at the tram stop at a tight curve near Bulovka yep. Hospital in Prague, Prague 8, which is a little section known as Lieben, which is the very top of the Vltava River, mm -hmm. bend in, in, in the river. It's kind of a, a mill town area, so yeah. um, it is right next to the castle that is the prefaces over the, the entire uh, Vltava Valley. So the spot was chosen because the curve would force the car to slow down just enough. Vasilik was positioned about 100 meters north of Gabček and Kubish as lookout for the approaching car. As Heydrich's open-top car, Mercedes, who was a 320 convertible B, reached the curve about two minutes later, Gabček stepped in front of the vehicle and tried to open fire, but his submachine gun jammed. Bad luck. <laughs> so, yeah. So he's standing out in the middle of the street with, with a weapon that doesn't work. Exactly. So, so Heydrich ordered his driver, which was in, the, the rank is an SS Oberschaffuhrer, 
Klein, that's his name, to stop the car. And then Heydrich stood up to try to shoot Gopchik. So yeah, that's an like, ego boy. Yeah, <laughs> and we, we, they, all he had was a Luger. So Heydrich stands up with his Luger and starts trying to shoot. So Kubish, who was standing at the tram stop still, threw a modified anti-tank grenade, which he had hidden in a briefcase. Okay, this is like straight out of a movie, right yeah, here. This is yeah. it's amazing. At, Okay, now, the, so he, he threw it at the vehicle, and the fragments ripped through the car's right rear bumper. And um, so they, they didn't consider that a direct hit, because it was kind of in the back of the car. But um, the, the shrapnel and fibers from the upholstery kind of got into, you know, hit Heydrich and, and, and got into his body. And even though, uh, you know, even though it was kind of a, a near miss, let's say, and Kubish, who was standing... Uh, you know, pretty close to this, was also injured by the shrapnel. And following the uh, explosion, Gopchik and Kubish fired at Heydrich with their handguns, but they were also kind of shell-shocked a little. I mean, you know... Literally shell-shocked from yeah, the explosion. Yeah, it was right, right next to him. And they, they failed to hit him. And Heydrich, who was, you know, kind of in shock himself, he didn't... He was unaware of his shrapnel injuries, and he staggered out of the car, returned fire... And tried to chase Gobchik, but he then collapsed. So he then realized that he was injured. Klein, this is the driver, he returned from his abortive attempt to chase Kubish. And so, and Kubish got away by bicycle. Again, he, hold on, this, that's important. We're going to come back to the bicycle thing yeah. in a minute. Now bleeding profusely, Heydrich ordered Klein to chase Gobchik on foot. Klein chased him to a butcher shop where Gobchik shot him twice with his revolver. And uh, basically shot him in the in the leg, wounding him pretty severely, and then escaped to a local safe house. Both Gopchik and Kubish were initially convinced that the attack had failed because Heydrich, you know, got up, started shooting at him, and and he didn't. They didn't really realize that he was he was wounded uh, pretty badly, actually. But Heydrich was badly wounded, and had um, you know, long story short, he had he had um, parts of his his rib was removed, and he had a collapsed lung. And after surgery, he started to recover a little bit after seven days. But after the seventh day, he kind of sat up to eat his lunch, and he just went into shock and then fell into a coma and died a few hours later. So, so it looked like he was actually going to make it. Some say it was, it was the fibers from the car itself that were embedded in the, with the shrapnels into his body that caused an infection that never got better. So he might have died from the smallest type of, yeah. of, of possible infection issue that uh, he couldn't shake. You know that that's what killed Franz Josef? That's, that's exactly yeah. what killed Franz Josef. Uh, that sparked World War One. upholstery, man. Uh, yeah, stay away from upholstery. It's yeah. <laughs> so, so not to make too much light of this, but we talked about that bicycle. That's important, too, and it leads us back to the people that we don't mention, families that got involved with this. Every one of the families, if I'm not mistaken, every one of the families, even their children, were either sent to con were found out after the, were found out after this and sent to concentration camps or killed. That bicycle that you mentioned, Travis, where uh, he, he got away, um, Kubish got away on the bicycle. That bicycle was later tracked down to be belonged to a girl attached to another family. That's how they found that okay. found that out. So I mean, the the, the hunt was on. Yeah. Uh, to find these perpetrators and to make uh, uh, a definite stand on say we don't allow this. This is not going to be allowed. Yeah. So yeah, on the on the same day of the assassination, uh, Hitler ordered an immediate investigation and reprisals. He was pissed. Yeah. Hitler. Hitler. He looked at Reinhardt as his his boy. Mm -hmm. This this was his boy, and not only that, it was a, a besmirchment on the entire leadership of the Third Reich. Oh yeah. So yeah. so actually, Hitler wanted. 
not not repository. He wanted to he wanted several hundreds of thousands of checks to pay for this. Yeah, when we mentioned earlier that he was holding the whole nation as a hostage, that's kind of what we're getting at here. So w throughout the investigation, some 13,000 people were arrested, including Jan Kubisch's girlfriend, Anna Malinova, who subsequently died in the Mauthausen-Gusen concentration camp. First Lieutenant Adolf Opaka's aunt, Maria Opalkova, was executed in the Mauthausen camp uh, later the same year, and his father, Viktor Yarolim was also killed. One estimate, some 5,000 were killed in these reprisals. So, I mean, imagine, for the death of one man, you know, 5,000 had to, had to die for this. And this brings us to Liditze, and, and we've both been there. In this investigation, two towns were linked to this, falsely. This, is, this wasn't even, a, 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 you know, true. But the intelligence that came back to, to the investigators was that Two towns known as Liditze and Lejaki were somehow involved. Even if it was just, you know, it's one of the safe houses one, I think they found a battery in one, doesn't matter. Those two towns were going to Liditze was, was, was uh, if I'm not mistaken, the, the, the hearsay at the time was that there was a letter written by a young man that was saying that he had some involvement in this, which he did not. And it was yeah. confiscated. And all he was trying to do when he was questioned was saying, I was trying to impress, impress a girl that he liked. Mm -hmm. Well, this led to one of the saddest moments and, and a, a powder keg moment of World War II, uh, which was the raising to the ground of Laditza. So in this very small town that's just north of Prague, basically an industrial, it's an industrial rural area uh, where a lot of the members of the populace of Laditza worked in, in, in local factories for, for, the, for the Nazis. It is a very small bucolic town and you wouldn't think this would be the reprisal that all of the world would be looking towards after, after Heydrich's death, but it was. All adult males were executed in this town. All but a handful of its women and children were deported and killed in Nazi concentration camps. In the village of Laditza, destroyed on the 9th of June, 1942, 199 men were executed. 95 children were taken prisoner, 81 later killed in gas vans at the Kelbno uh, extermination camp. Eight others were taken for adoption by German families if they were deemed to be German enough. Yeah, you know, blonde, blonde, blonde hair, blue eye uh, kids. 195 women were immediately deported to Ravensbrück concentration camp. All adults, men and women, in the village of Lejaki were murdered straight out. The, both towns were burned and the ruins of Laditza leveled, razed to the ground. All men in the village were rounded up and taken to a farm of the Horak family at the edge of the village. Mattresses from, from rooms and, and, and buildings surround, and within this town were all taken and stood up against the wall of the Horrocks barn so that, so that the bullets couldn't pass through the barn itself. Yeah. Right? So you get that, that image in your head. The shooting of the men commenced about 7 a.m. At first, the men were shot in groups of five, but Bohem thought, thought the executions were proceeding too slowly and ordered that 10 men at a time would be shot. The dead were left lying there where they fell. This continued until the afternoon hours when there were 173 dead. Another 11 men were, were not in the village that day, were arrested later and executed soon afterwards, as were eight men and seven women already under arrest because they had relations serving with the Czech army in exile in the United Kingdom. A total of 200, 203 women and 105 children were taken to the Liditsa village school. They were then taken to the nearby town of Kladno, which is pretty close to here, and detained in the grammar school for three days. 
the children were separated from their mothers, four women were pregnant and were sent to the same hospital where Heydrich died, their fetuses were forcibly aborted and the women sent to different concentration camps. On the 12th of June 1942, 184 women of Lidice were loaded on trucks, driven to Kladno Railroad Railway Station and forced into special passenger train guarded by an escort. Uh, two days later, the train halted on a railway siding at the concentration camp at Ravensburg. On their arrival, the Laditsa women were first isolated in a special block and then forced to work in leather processing, road building, textile, ammunition factories, so, you know, forced labor. 88 Laditsa children were transported to the area of the former textile factory in uh, the Gneisenau Street in Lodz. Their arrival was announced by telegram from Horst Böhm's uh, Prague office, which ended with, the children are only bringing what they wear. No special care is desirable, right? So basically they had nothing else but the clothes on their backs, literally. And they suffered from a lack of hygiene and from illness, obviously. And by order of camp management, they got no medical treatment at all. And shortly after arrival in Lotz, officials from the Central Race and Settlement Branch chose several children for Germanization. Those are the ones that, that went to Germany as, you know, were adopted, basically. To get a, a better idea about what happened to these children at, that weren't German, picked for Germanization, um, if you remember seeing the movie in the 1990s, Schindler's List, um, there was a scene that was really hard to watch, and it was a scene where the Germans had, had put children and enticed them to go on a, on a field trip to, get to, to leave the camp and put them on, in a... Uh, looked like a, an armored vehicle of some sort in the back of a truck. And once they got them in there, they then closed all the ventilation and gassed them that way. That's basically what happened to the, to the children of Laditza. That's one of the hardest things to, to think about, and uh, it, it stays with you. The, the main idea here wasn't just of, of retribution against the flesh. It was the whole idea no, that this town yeah. had to be wiped out it of memory. Wiped clean. So w when we said that it was raised to the ground, that's an understatement. It was, it was actually more than that. So the, the village of Lidice was set on fire, and then the remains of the buildings was destroyed by explosives. So even like the basements and cellars and everything was blown up so that there was no brick even, you know, uh, even underground, everything was torn up. The streets were torn up, the trees were uprooted. Even those that were buried in the cemetery, the the corpses were dug up and the tombstones, you know, thrown away. Um, the remains were destroyed. I mean, it was just nothing. The village of Lajaki had was similarly destroyed two weeks after Lidice. Unfortunately, they get kind of forgotten about. Um, in, it's not in the as well known. Yeah, it's not as well Lidice known. Lidice was, was first. It's just as bad, though. And basically, the only thing that linked Lajaki to any of this was that Gestapo agents found a radio transmitter there um, of an underground team who parachuted in with Kubish and, and Gabchik. So it actually had a better connection, but you know, it's a, it's a string. Both men and women of the village were shot. The children were sent to concentration camps or Aryanized, kind of the same as Lidice. And the death toll resulting from the efforts to avenge the death of Heydrich is estimated, like we said, at over 1,300. So this count includes relatives of the partisans, their supporters, Czech elites suspected of being disloyal, and random victims like the ones of Lidice. I mean, it's really just, you know, drawn from a hat almost. So Nazi propaganda, this was not kept secret in any way. This was openly and proudly announced. And other, unlike massacres in occupied Europe, you know, which were kind of kept under wraps and, and minimized in some way, 
And so obviously this information was instantly picked up by ally allied media. And uh, we've both been there. And, you know, I mean, wh what's your impression of Lidice now? Well, it's, it's actually very beautiful. It's, it's very peaceful. It's, it's a park. It's basically a field. And, I mean, and when you go to the museum there, you'll, you'll pass by. There, there actually is a modern town of Lidice now. That, don't get confused with that. There's a, there's a museum. Yeah, there's a post office. And it runs uh, parallel. And, and then you just kind of circle around, and then you head towards the museum. And as you're passing towards the museum, you'll see this this whole hill full of roses of all different kinds yeah. of, of shapes and colors. And uh, overlooking this this kind of uh, trough valley that kind of goes off into the trees, it's actually very very beautiful. There's a walkway that goes through there. But what you don't imagine is that. There used to be houses and farmhouses and I streets. I think the church, they put like a, a circle where the foundation used to be so you can kind of get, get an idea. But it's mostly, you know, plants and grass. And it's, you know, the, not there is one there. sculpture. There's several sculptures there. Yeah. But there's one sculpture of the children of Laditza. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's, I believe, a bronze sculpture. And it's got all the children, if you can imagine, what they, some of them were patterned from photographs. So they're almost... Right. identical to what yeah. the kids look like. That's very moving. That's at the base of the hill uh, to see that. Um, so it is, it is a place of, of, of uh, quietness, and, um, and you, you sit there and you just kind of take it all in. Yeah. Uh, it, is, it is hard. Initial public reaction, or, or let's say allied reaction, was um, kind of disbelief that, people, that the Germans would actually apply the principle of kind of this collective responsibility. Like we said, that they're holding the whole nation captive, right? I mean, this was kind of hard to, to believe. Um, this was not foreseen by the Czech government in exile, um, or else was deemed an accessible price, possibly, um, because Heydrich was really that hated and, and thought that much of a danger. So even killing the Nazis, killing 1,300 directly of this result, still might have been deemed acceptable compared to how many he would have killed otherwise. I mean, it's, it's hard to say what, what went on in their minds, but um, yeah. Uh, uh, Winston Churchill, for instance, was infuriated enough to suggest leveling three German villages for every Czech village the Nazis destroyed. So, you know, he had the same kind of, I mean, he was so mad that he said, okay, so you guys kill two villages, we'll kill six. He was quickly talked out of that, though, yeah. because that would have been a, a tit-for-tat sort of yeah, back yeah, and that, forth. That's and, not good. I mean, remember, at the time, he was upset. Um, uh, there was a, a rivalry between Hitler and Churchill that when the uh, bombers, the, the junkers would come over and bomb uh, London, he wanted to bomb Berlin just as hard. Yeah. Uh, so there was, there was that rivalry there, unlike a, a football match in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, but this, this, this particular issue, he was talked out of, and he kind of left it, left it alone. Yeah. Two years after Heydrich's death, there was a similar assassination attempt planned, uh, but this time targeting Hitler, which is o Operation Foxley, but it wasn't approved. And um, Operation Anthropoid, Anthropoid remains the only successful government-organized targeted killing of a top-ranking Nazi. So, so this, is, this was it. As we mentioned before, the assailants initially hid with two Prague families and later took refuge in, in Karl Brominski Church, an Eastern Orthodox church dedicated to St. Cyril and Methodius in Prague. The Germans were unable to locate the attackers until Karl Chorda 
of the outdistance sabotage group was arrested by the Gestapo and gave him the names of the, of the, of the team's local contacts for a bounty of about 500,000 Reichmarks. Waffen-SS troops laid siege to the church the following day, but despite the best efforts of over 70, 700 SS soldiers under the command of Karl Fischer von Truenfeld, they were unable to take the paratroopers alive. Three, including Kubisch, were killed in the prayer loft, although it was said to have survived the battle and died shortly afterwards from, their, from his injuries, after two, a two-hour gun battle that ensued. The other four, including Kubczyk, uh, committed suicide in the crypt after repeated SS attacks. The attempts of, uh, to smoke them out with tear gas and Prague fire brigade trucks brought brought in to try to flood the crypt as well. Travis, you can actually see outside the building the the yeah. gunfire still, the bolt still holes, yeah. Uh, and the flooding itself, I'm sure, was a, a very harrowing scene in the last few minutes of their lives. Yeah, the Germans, the, basically the SS and police suffered casualties as well. Some 14 SS allegedly killed and 21 wounded, according to one report. Um, although official SS reports about the fight mentioned only five wounded SS soldiers. The men in the church had only small caliber pistols, while the attackers had machine guns, submachine guns, and hand grenades. So imagine that. It's kind of the, the, the Alamo. After the battle, Churda confirmed the identity of the dead Czech resistance fighter, fighters including Kubish and Gabček. Now, Bishop Gorazd, in an attempt to minimize the reprisals among his flock, took the blame for the actions in the church and even wrote letters to the Nazi authorities who arrested him on 27th of June 1942 and tortured him. So this was, you know, right, to, to mitigate the, you know, the... The, the, the priest took the blame. Yeah, instead right. of the whole um, parish, it's just, just him. On 4th of September 1942, the bishop, the church's priests, and senior lay leaders were taken to Kobelisi shooting range, a northern suburb of Prague, and shot by Nazi firing squads. For his actions, Bishop... Gorazd was later glorified as a martyr by the Eastern Orthodox Church. Rightfully should be. Uh, it, uh, you can see this church, uh, St. Cyril, uh, Cyril and Methodius, uh, as you're heading away from Prague's center and heading towards the Vltava River, uh, right towards your left. I believe that street exits down by the Fred and Ginger building. Not a whole lot has changed with, with, that, with that church. Uh, they still do tours and it's still active uh, uh, among uh, the Catholic parishioners. You do see the bullet holes and you do see some, some plaques that are there. Uh, yeah. That it was a very uh, uh, tense time, tense standoff. And of course, two of the uh, paratroopers, Czech paratroopers, took their own lives. Those pictures were taken of their bodies and uh, put in the newspaper the very next day to prove this is what happens, that these guys weren't living and hiding someplace. To leave it on a happier note, um, just to give you a, a touch of the world's reaction, let's say. So in, in the same year as the raising of Lidice, in September of 1942, coal miners in Stoke-on-Trent, led by Sir Barnett Strauss, MP, founded the organization Lidice Shall Live. And, and this was to raise funds for the rebuilding of the village after the war, which the, the village is right next to. So obviously different people live there, but yeah. there's a village right next to that field where Lidice used to stand. And soon after raising the village, several towns in various countries were named after it. And just to give a couple exam examples, there's, there's really a lot that actually, you know, changed their, their town name to Lidice. For instance, a neighborhood in Crest Hill, Illinois, was renamed from Stern Park to Laditza, a square in the English city of Coventry, and self, itself devastated by Luftwaffe bombing during World War II, is now named Laditza. Um, there's an alley in a very crowded area of downtown Santiago, Chile, 
which is named after the town of Laditsa. There's many, many more than that. We, I mean, even naming this many, we just wanted to let everybody know that there's dozens of towns named Laditsa. This was kind of a, a global reaction. I, I, want, I want our listeners to kind of put this in perspective at the time of, I don't want to use the word propaganda, but this is pretty close to it. Uh, you got to remember, this is 1942 when this happened. Uh, the United States had just entered the war with Japan, and of course, Germany declared war on the United States thereafter. People were still in the recruiting phase. They were still trying to mobilize. We weren't to the point where, uh, when I say we, the United States, weren't to the point yet to be this arsenal of victory that, would, that the United States would later become in the war. So things were still on a tipping edge. And the, remember the Alamo was replaced, of course, by Remember Pearl Harbor. Remember Laditza was also on those posters. Yeah. And they were all around the United lit. States yeah. in the early 1940s. And it made people get a better idea about what they were facing. Laditza did give you a scope. It gave you an idea that the, the Nazis, the Third Reich, were, were in this by any means necessary to yeah. exterminate, to win, uh, to have their way with the entire Europe. There was no placating these and people. basically using whole countries as hostages. I mean, that's, that's... If that didn't make you want to join up and fight, I don't know what would. Yeah. So that did its job. So if you want to get more of an idea about this, already in the next year they already started making movies about the story. So if you come to the Czech Republic, you'll see these different places. We talked about St. Cyril the Methodius Church, Catholic Church that's, that's downtown in Prague. You can uh, uh, take a tour of that area and, and the... Uh, the the basement area where that was flooded, where where Kubček and and Kubish were held up uh, for a time there. You can also uh, go up to Lidice, which is not too far, uh, just near Kladno and Slani, little towns of Slani uh, that's just north. Let of, me tell you, that'll ruin your day. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's like going to a concentration camp. Well, it's and if, if you could sad. actually keep going north, you're going to run into. Uh, uh, Terezin, which is another yeah. sad moment uh, history, which is a city concentration camp, city-sized concentration camp in, in its own respect. But these places, I think, are necessary to visit if you want to grasp the full history of what's happened here. So I hope you, you, you got some information tonight that you can use. I know it was a sad, uh, sad uh, moment on our podcast, a very maudlin sort of uh, program we had tonight. But we, we hope that it kind of expands your, your knowledge set on this time frame in history here in the Czech Republic. We want to thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Yep, thanks. You have been listening to the Bohemican Podcast with Pete Coleman and Travis Doe. Visit bohemican.com for more information on this episode, other episodes, and much more information about history, traditions, and culture in the Czech Republic. Find us on iTunes, subscribe, and review, and don't forget to rate us. We would love to hear from you. Send comments, ideas, and corrections on our comments page on bohemican.com, or get in touch via Facebook or Twitter. Tune in to our sister podcast, History of Alchemy, which is also on iTunes, or on historyofalchemy.com. Until next time on the Bohemican Podcast, thank you for listening.